Okay, very excited to be here with uh, Nancy Mead. Hello, Nancy. Hello. You, uh, you're kind of the person who's high up in the court system here in Alaska, huh? Well, I'm general counsel for the court system. There are certainly many people above me, but yes. <laughs> so we're here in this just really great courtroom. I've, I've never really been in this chair before in the courtroom, so well, it's my first time. Well, that's probably a good thing. Luckily, there's no judge. Right, right. It's an empty courtroom. The judge was away today, so we... We were able to uh, have this interview here. This is kind of a nice, this is like a big, this is like a superior court, you said? or Superior courtroom. It, this is Judge Shally's courtroom, and they conduct uh, basically, you know, felony cases and domestic relations and child in need of aid, all the, all the important trial court cases. A lot of it happens right here. Wow. So um, I'm kind of new to Juneau. I've been here for about a month doing legislative stuff, watch, watching the legislature, and I keep seeing you, I keep seeing you on TV or in testifying in these hearings. You're kind of maybe one of the most known people uh, testifying. So I kind of said, who are you? And we started chatting and here we are doing the, uh, the podcast. So maybe tell me a little bit about uh, you and then what you do in the court, court system. Okay. Um, I am, as I say, the general counsel for the court system, and I've been working as the spokesper- court's spokesperson in Juneau since 2012, and I speak on all the bills. I have a colleague who handles the court's budget. His name is Doug Wooliver, so I don't don't need to uh, tackle that piece of the, the court's um, uh, outreach and uh, interaction in Juneau. But with respect to all the bills, I try to provide information to the legislators, and so I end up testifying quite a bit because there are questions about how the procedure works, you know, how would this wording be interpreted by a judge, what's the data, how many people might this impact, and questions of that nature. I don't provide testimony on whether bills are a good or bad idea or whether I think it should pass or not. That's not the court's role. Do they ever ask you, like, is this good or is this... Yes, sometimes I am asked, you know, is that constitutional or not, or do we think this is a good idea? But I decline those because we really do respect the separation of powers, and it's up to the legislature to handle those policy decisions about whether they want to do something or not. My interest, though, is making sure they have a lot of facts before they make that decision. And so it it wouldn't do to have the court's lawyer on record saying something is a good idea Mm -hmm. or not because many statutes get challenged in court. And so it would, you know, people wouldn't think they had a fair shake if the court's counsel lawyer said on the record, this is great, and then someone wanted to challenge it. So we really don't provide opinions on the... um, goodness or badness or soundness or reasonableness on legislation, but I do try to point out, um, you know, how it will impact the courts. So um, before you were the general counsel, you were doing something else with the court system? Yes. I uh, I worked as the court rules attorney before that, and uh, lawyers know, but I don't know if everyone knows that there is a very um, well-used book about as thick as a phone book called The Alaska Rules of Court, and there are rules on criminal procedure and rules on civil procedure and child in need of aid procedure, probate procedure. Is it like Robert's Rules for the le- legislature? Well, it's... Uh, g- g- they are... A little bit. They're um, procedures for how the legislature's laws will be handled in court. So it has everything in there from timelines, how many days you have to file something, um, how you choose jurors, how jury selection will go in a courtroom. And I mean, it's just, it, it handles all I've never been called for, I've been here for, since 2004, I've never got the jury duty letter. My friend, All my friends have got it. I'm still 
Still waiting. Well, it how does that work? How it, does... It's 100% random, actually. But where, by statute, where the court system gets the list of who to call is from PFD applications. I heard that. Yeah, I've, I've got, I've gotten them, and I've just, I'm keep, I keep waiting. Okay, you I really can... want to go. Right. I was going to say some people would consider you lucky, and some people, you know, have a great interest in serving. I will say that those who serve who end up getting chosen for a jury and serving on a jury almost universally, maybe even universally, enjoy the experience. It's always a disruption to your life to get that notice and try to remember to call. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's just this little added stressor. But once people are on a jury, I I think we always hear that they enjoyed the experience and learned a lot. I have the feeling if you ever got called, you probably would be dismissed. I was called once and I was dismissed. Yeah. But I'd love to serve. <laughs> I'll go back to my office. Thanks. <laughs> well, I'd, I would have been fair. I would have been fine. Yeah. I'm, I'm, um, some of those people get those long trials, you know, they're like months long and then they have work and. Right. Clearly it can be a bigger disruption depending on what you're chosen for. Um, and I mean, all we can say is the constitution, you know, that's a, the price of citizenship and, um, that's required in some instances. And it's harder in areas with fewer, with a lower population base, like, uh, Bethel or mm-hmm. Dillingham, where you have a high trial rate and you have fewer people to be called. So guess what? Each my, person has to serve a little more often. My friend's a lawyer and he said, it's pretty incredible that how 12 random people usually get it right. Yes, so. that's what we hope. That's what our system of government hopes. So are you from Alaska or are you? I am from upstate New York, outside of Buffalo, and I went to school in Connecticut and then law school in Boston. But I came up to Alaska right after law school uh, to work for the attorney general's office. I did oil and gas tax litigation, actually, for, oh, wow. for what, a good number what year of was years. That? Uh, 87 when I first came up here. and, uh, was, and that, was that the ELF? The, the elf P-P- was an issue. Yes, <laughs> yes, I remember all those different acronyms. We always yep. we're good with we're, we're good with acronyms. Yes, the economic limit factor is mm-hmm. what it was. But uh, I've I've mostly forgotten what where, I worked on back in those days. Where did you go to law school? Uh, Northeastern University in Boston. Oh, nice. Which actually has a very high number of graduates of their law school practicing law in Alaska. I think it might be the first or second or third represented law school among Alaskan attorneys. I did a podcast a few weeks ago with Representative Adam Wool. He's from Boston. Oh, yeah, so okay. So if you ever hear him sometimes. I didn't know him. Once in a while, his <laughs> accent comes out. When he's, yes. It's yeah. uh, very Boston. Yeah. And then after I went to work for the court system, or for the attorney general's office, I left for a couple of years. I actually taught at UC Berkeley for a couple of years in their uh, law school and then ended up coming right back here. My husband oh, and I had missed Alaska, so we returned. You know, I saw a few, uh, a few months ago in Anchorage, the, the guy from uh, UC Berkeley, oh, what's his name? The real famous law professor, um, Aldrich, he talks about the uh, free free speech. Oh my uh, gosh, I, it's like a uh, it's Ukrainian name, but he's very well known. He came in Anchorage and spoke at the, with oh, the university. Huh. Huh. So it was, yeah. a, it was a small room, but it was a really interesting to see the guy speak. I just did two years there in the early 90s. It was a good experience, though, and then came back. And I've been with the court system since 2004. But as I say, I was the rules attorney before this gig. So how big is our court system? How okay. many people, how many judges, how many? We, we have about 750 employees statewide. We have 40 different court locations. So we try to maintain a presence in communities as much as we possibly can, of course, recognizing the um, fiscal issues with having courthouses in, in extremely small communities. But we do have a physical presence in 40 locations. Uh, we, oh, 40. Jeez. 40. They're everywhere, really. You know, St. Mary's and Alaska, all over. And they're variously staffed. It doesn't mean that there's a full superior court judges in the, judge in each of those 40 locations. That's not the case. But we have um, uh, uh, 
five Supreme Court justices, three courts of, of Court of Appeals judges, and then our trial courts, which there are two different kinds of. Um, we have 43 Superior Court judges right now and 22 District Court judges. And the difference, if I don't know if I should go into that, but the difference is the Superior Court judges can handle any trial court matter whatsoever, and the District Court judges are uh, judges of more limited jurisdiction. So they handle, for example, just misdemeanors, but not felonies. And uh, uh, lower level types of crimes and issues. The Superior Court handles, as I say, the felonies and also domestic relations, which are really, um, there's a lot of those. That's family law, uh, mm-hmm. divorces and child custody, <clears throat> and child in need of aid. That's all Superior Court. What about civil cases? Or is that a Civil cases are split between District Court and Superior Court. If the amount in controversy is over $100,000, Superior Court takes it. If it's less, the District Court takes it. So basically anybody can sue anybody for anything, but... That's the, true. The, the court can... Uh, uh, how, how, is there a lot of frivolous stuff that happens, or is it kind of... Uh, I mean, you have to have a lawyer, probably, or you have to kind of know what you're doing a little bit. A, a little bit. I don't know how to answer that if there's a lot of frivolous stuff. There's certainly some um, in... Uh, in, in some cases, but uh, a lot of people are self-represented more and more, especially in the family law area. I can't remember the statistic, but it might be as much as 70 or 80% of our family law cases, which is child custody or divorce. Um, at least one of the parties doesn't have a lawyer. So, so no, so do they have to, does the court help them and maybe with the rules or how to, how to, cause most people probably have no idea how to, the procedures work. Right. It can be an incredible challenge for the judges because they still have to give absolute fairness to everybody, even if somebody doesn't know how to write something or how to put together their argument. What we do have, though, is in our administrative office, uh, what's called our Family Law Self-Help Center. So on our website, we have a whole button called that you can click on representing yourself. And we provide tons of information. Here's a form you can use. And we try to write the forms in simple language so people can uh, use them better. And we have a toll-free hotline you can call if you have a family law issue and you just don't even know where to begin. And I, I think we have our five or six employees who are really busy. In fact, the number is often busy um, helping people who just don't know where to begin with what to do with their child custody issues. And that office also helps people in probate issues. Most people think of probate as wills, and that mm-hmm. is a piece of it. But a really big piece of it is guardianships and conservatorships. So if you're your, your mom is having a hard time getting along and can't quite handle her affairs, you can you know, uh, use some of these self-help forms and whatever and try to um, uh, get the court to There was a bill about conservatorship last year, wasn't there, a couple of years ago? Wasn't that like a going through the legislature? Uh, there was. I think Matt tra- Clayman was, Representative Clayman was doing it. That's exactly right. He wanted to allow a little, a, a, a broader um, group of people that could be chosen to be a conservator because there's that balance with conservators where, yes, you want to help a person handle their affairs, but on the other hand, you have to be careful um, of any sorts of uh, fraud or misuse yeah. on those in those well, cases. What about, so I was on the board of something called the Alaska Institute for Justice uh, for four, three years. It used to be Alaska Immigration Justice Project, and they have the uh, Language Interpreter Center, and um, it was interesting, I got really familiar with that, but uh, many years ago, you know, sometimes they'd have a, a language issue and they'd use, like, in a custody battle or something, they'd, they'd sometimes they'd use the kid to, to be the, inter- which is really unfair because you don't know if the kid's saying what they're telling them to say, the parent, either parent. So is there a lot of um, interpreters in the system or 
there actually are. We have uh, uh, we use the Language Interpreter Center, and I think maybe in the last few years things have improved quite a bit. The court uses either a um, a hotline, basically, down to somewhere in the lower forty eight. Yeah, I've, I've a, seen that. Right. And a person appears and does the simultaneous or consecutive interpretation. Um, during court proceedings, but there are now things like the interpreter's code of ethics. You can't just yeah. use a child. You have to have somebody trained, and it's quite a bit of training, actually. Yeah, there's a story where, where somebody in the audience could spoke the language, and they and they said, "Hey, you know, this is a long time ago," but they yes. said something like, "This is something's going on here." Right, you aren't sure if they're interpreting accurately. It's the See, main I, problem. I, I speak Russian fairly well, mm-hmm. um, and I've been. In, meetings where you have the little, you know, the interpreters there and your, the earpiece. But um, it's so, I can't even imagine how hard it is. Somebody told me, try repeat, watch the news in English and try repeating what you hear in English. And it's, mm-hmm. it's super hard to even do it in the same language. Yes. Let alone a different language. Right. And let alone terms well, that are not very familiar right. to and, you. Right. And especially so, with legal stuff. Right. Or, yeah, right. Very, very, so they, um, they have to go through quite a bit of training. So I was going to ask you about judicial counsel, which is a pretty unique... Um, system we have in Alaska to choose judges, which is a lot of other states elect judges. Uh, uh, some other states do. I think there's a good mix. But, um, well, first of all, of course, the court system is a completely separate branch of government from, obviously, the legislature, but also the executive branch. So so just to back up a little bit, the judicial branch has nothing to do with the governor's office. Some people often think that the Department of Law works with us or public defenders mm-hmm. or anything. That's all the governor's office. All the judicial branch is is three entities. So one is the Alaska court system, which is people probably think that's all that's in the judicial branch. That's but you. That's me, yes. But there are two teeny tiny other entities in our branch, and one is the Commission on Judicial Conduct, and that's where people can go to uh, complain that a judge um, violated. Some I, I know a little rule. bit about that one. Okay, you, you may, do. You may have, uh, I remember you. You, you, you going may to have remembered. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I know a little um, bit. I'm real familiar with right, that one. They're public members. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the other one is the one you mentioned, the Judicial Council. So it um, is part of the judicial branch, but it is not under the court system at all. But still, we rely on their work because, yeah. Yes, they're the entity that um, is charged under the Constitution with um, uh, screening applicants for judicial positions, then nominating names that will go to the governor to ultimately be appointed by the governor. And then they also, by law, have to assess judges who stand for retention, which is what we have every uh, four to six years, depending on the court a judge's name appears on the ballot, um, and it's just a yes or no vote, as I'm sure most people here are familiar with. So the Judicial Council's method of choosing judges is uh, this merit selection method. And again, I'm not the council, but I, of course, know what they do because we um, rely on them. And so they go through um, this merit selection process that's very uh, intense, I guess. Rigorous. Rigorous is a good word um, to uh, screen any applicants for the open judgeships and then end up after the interview nominating the names. I could go into more detail, but um, it is really considered a gold standard in terms of providing a court system. And that's every judge, every lower, higher, middle, it's all. Yes. Now we do have some magistrate judges who handle much lower level matters, maybe um, uh, traffic citations and um, initial hearings and all sorts of cases. And they are just employees of the court system. So they don't go through the council, but district court judges, superior and appellate, of course, do. 
So um, it's it's a great system. It does result in a bunch of judges that in the years and years and years we've been a state, we have been really scandal-free and uh, free of some of the things that I read about happening in other states with judges who, who do what I would consider to be outrageous things and get have to get kicked off the bench. Yeah. And we've been really lucky so far, and I, I credit our system of choosing the judges. I always thought, you know, when you... I like our system because when you elect a judge, it opens up, you know, and raising money and campaigning and you probably open doors that here we don't have to. And so if somebody, rarely the council will recommend not retention, right? But I mean, I've only recalled that maybe once or twice since I've been here. Yeah, and we're getting a little bit out of my area because I'm not as up on those sorts of things. But yes, sometimes they recommend a a no vote on a certain judge. To do that, it would have to be because the judge um, really did something inappropriate. Pretty pretty, pretty bad. Yes, yes, Um, and that has happened. So I got to ask you about court view. I think everybody in Alaska who's been here for more than a year knows about court view. Mm-hmm. Um, I go in there all the time. I'm, I'm like obsessed with it. You know, <laughs> when you, you meet somebody, you're like, oh, what's what's their court view? Um, so there was a couple years ago. I recall a bill about if somebody was charged and not convicted, or maybe expunged, it would it would go away. So like, how does court view work? What what what's on there, and what what might not be on there if somebody isn't doesn't get convicted, or maybe something gets expunged. Okay, so court view is really just the court's case management system. We started uh, implementing it in 2002 as just a way to organize our cases. And um, it has become since then quite a tool for the public. But it it wasn't created and it isn't intended as a major tool for the public to find out things about other people. Um, Nonetheless, we recognize that it's used that way and just to be clear, it is not a person's uh, criminal justice history. It's not where you'd go for a background check on somebody. The state's official criminal justice database resides in the Department of Public Safety. It's called APSIN, the Alaska Public Safety Information Network or something. So APSIN, if you're getting a job with a high-level organization like uh, Providence Hospital or something like that, and you have to go through a background check, court view is is podunk and compared to the um, the real uh, audited um, federally funded information mm-hmm. that's kept in absin still we know that a lot of people just go to court view to find out things about people whether they're just meeting them or want to want to rent to them or I think something. a lot of people start dating and that's like yeah a big maybe one. It's so like, oh, what's he what's he doing I've certainly heard that <laughs> that's probably the most common use I bet for court view is dating yeah and I'm sure small businesses look up potential employees if they don't want to go through the true background check with absin and landlords we've certainly heard yeah, when, I, when i got i drove a cab many many years ago in college in anchorage and i had to go to the troopers place and mm-hmm. pay with what, 10 bucks or whatever but yeah they gave me the background check for the chauffeur's license yeah i'm, so, I'm real good I'm, i got nothing <laughs> i bet you are yeah i'm, I'm great <laughs> um but court view is um always actually a little bit controversial. Some people think, oh, all that information about someone shouldn't be up there. And other people think, don't remove anything. I like being able to look up people on court view. So it goes both ways. And in fact, each session, it seems like there's a bill to remove things from court view or um, or not do, people, people. Do other states have things like this or? Not really, to my knowledge. We're the... What we are is one unified court system. There's no municipal courts. There's nothing other than the Alaska court system. And that is our database. And we post it all. So in in Alaska, it's very easy to go to one website and find out all all about 
uh, a person's uh, cases. Whereas in, for example, California, you might want to go to the California state court system and then the Los Angeles County court system and then to all different sorts of places for information. But ours is kind of a one-stop shop. You can go to court view and find out anybody's Alaskan yeah. um, court cases. My, my um, <clears throat> issue with it is always, I don't really know how to, I'm not a lawyer, so I'll have my friends kind of I'll look, have them look at it and say, what does this mean? And sometimes they'll say, well, this is nothing. This was thrown out. This was dismissed. And you can kind of read it once you get more familiar with it. But if you just look it up and sometimes you see all the, the front page, it looks like, oh, somebody... Somebody's bad. I know. We have warnings on there, for example, that says, don't assume just because there's a charge, there's mm-hmm. a conviction. But, I mean, I know that some people don't read too deeply into it, and that is definitely an issue. So the bill you were talking about is a couple of years ago, the legislature told us to take off court view, and we do. If you have a criminal case where you're um, charged with something, and then you end up getting fully acquitted by a jury, uh, you know, not guilty, or if if your case is dismissed, um, we take it off court view. And we didn't used to do that. So 60 days after that, we remove cases from court view. So you no longer will see on there a case where someone was charged with an assault if they were uh, acquitted or if the case was dismissed. So those aren't up there. And then the other area that is important to people that is not up there anymore is domestic violence protective order petitions if they were um, denied That's if somebody says... This person can't come around me or? That's right. And a lot of people have it mixed up with criminal cases. But it's if you think of as a hypothetical, a husband wife situation and the um, wife wants to um, get protection. You know, she feels like she's been the victim of domestic violence and it's necessary to keep him away. You go to the court. It's a civil case. There's no DA involved. It's not a you know, crime. Uh, you can get a protective order. And then uh, but sometimes people petition for one of those and um, they're denied right away by the judge, like almost saying there's no basis for it. And those we remove from court view because having that on there can looks have kinda, negative looks, consequences. Yeah, it looks, looks good. Yeah, probably. I wouldn't want to have my name up there for a domestic violence case if, if the court said it was unfounded. So um, the other thing is, which is pretty interesting, I've gotten, since I've been doing my website here, I follow some stuff sometimes. You, you can actually go and I've learned pretty much how to do this in Anchorage. You can go to the, the courthouse and you can pull somebody's file and you can go through it. And some, some of them are pretty, I mean, like cute, you know, interesting. And I have to have my lawyer buddy go with me to ask him what all this means because I'm like, I have no idea what it is. It's all these affidavits or motions, but those are all physical um, pa- papers, right? There's not, they aren't on court view, that information. Uh, no, I mean, court view is a list of all cases filed and there's limited information up there. Well, there are, are all the charges and what happens with the charges and things like that. And there's what we call the docket, which is just the actions in the case. What was filed um, when there was a hearing? It's just more or less a list of what happened. But you can't, we, we don't image every single order, for example, and put it up on that would the, take, that would on take the a internet. A lot of space. Yeah, we, we don't have that capacity. Terabyte, terabyte. Right. <laughs> thousands of terabytes. Yes, I guess so. So you can, But you can get a case number, and anyone can go to the courthouse and ask to see a file. Our files are public. We do that to maintain you know, public trust in what the courts are up to. And you can look up a, 
neighbor's divorce case, you can look up anything, kind of no questions asked. Um, you can look up criminal cases, and I know the media does come and want to see a little more depth about what exactly was in a charging document, and that's completely fine for the media yeah, or whenever, anyone else to do. Whenever I go in Anchorage, it's always kind of interesting who you see looking for, you see kind of political people, you see people looking at cases sometimes, you're like, oh, what, are you, what are you doing here? Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. I don't I, go into the. I always very see often. different people in there. Media, yes. mostly a lot of media people right. you see in there. Right, And that's, you know, the media does need to see what what we're up to in order that people can be confident that, that uh, everything we're doing is fine and open. I mean, there are a few confidential cases, of mm-hmm. course, you know, children's uh, issues and things like that. But generally, our cases are open. So what's going on with the, the Friday? Clo- is, are they trying to reopen it? Because I know it's closed at noon, right? Yes. On Fridays? I heard they were talking about trying to go, go back to five o'clock. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's a couple of years ago, the court system and just recognizing the fiscal issues was trying to... Um, Uh, lower their budget impact and recognizing the fiscal situation and the fact that most agencies and the court, most of our budget is spent on personnel. The only real way to cut your budget is to remove personnel or decrease hours. So a couple of years ago, the court proposed and did um, uh, close courts Friday afternoon, and that ended up uh, being a salary cut to employees. So that was the money savings. Salary, or employees lost 4% of their pay because they weren't coming in those extra hours. And uh, that was a couple million dollars in savings. Um, but this governor has said that he wants the courts open Friday afternoons. Um, it's been part of the message uh, related to public safety issues. And so um, this year, as the court was putting together its budget request, uh, all the court, the Supreme Court decided to request was kind of what we call a maintenance budget, just our increase in, in lease payments and utilities. Um, but it, hearing what the governor wanted, um, then our deputy director did meet with the governor's office and say, well, if, if you're supporting that, we would like to. We just didn't think this was the fiscal environment to ask. But we did decide to go ahead and amend our request and ask for the Friday afternoons on the grounds that courts should be open to the public as much as they can, and it will be up to the legislature whether to fund that. Um, but so now I'm, it is part of our request. So an interesting question. How much of the, the entire budget for the court system is funded by the legislature? legislature? Yes, <clears throat> 100%. So they could provide less funding and they could create I mean, issues if, if they're funding issues, or is it usually pretty pretty smooth well well that that is a good question they they could cripple us by not providing the money it takes to for our operations. Like let's say there's a very you know and you know um not combative but this legislature who is like i don't want to fund the courts as much as previously and that would you guys would have to deal with that right if that happened we would have to deal with that if that happened what we i mean i did say 100 percent funded by the legislature it's probably more like 99 we do have a teeny tiny federal grants for for a few little things but but right, we don't keep the money that we charge for filing fees, and we collect money for, I mean, sometimes bail gets exonerated, or sometimes um, we collect, uh, you know, fees people can pay on, on the court's website for parking uh, tickets, or not parking, but speeding tickets mm-hmm. and things like that. And So where does that go, the general, general fund? Yes, or? every bit of money that we take in goes directly to the general fund, um, but it would, I mean, it could never fund our operations. I don't know if it, I mean, it's under... I don't know if it's $8 million or something that we turn over to the general fund um, as we get it in. And then our budget, um, yes, we rely on 
the legislature to fund us. And um, we've enjoyed a very good relationship with the legislature. And I think they're p- elected by the public who recognizes that they need the courthouses. I was going to say, if they start messing with the courts, they, may, they, may, yeah. they might not be there very long. <laughs> right. It would be a little bit of a problem. But luckily, we um, we haven't had to face that. And I don't think we will. What, what I sometimes say is the court is really the face of state government in many communities. It's It can be the only state government building in lots of places. Oh, that's, a, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. And in Anchorage, for example, each month we had, I think the, the data I looked at is 72,000 people coming through the gate. And so people are walking into the courthouse, everything from paying parking tickets or trying to get a domestic violence protection or, you know, litigating. Uh, we're, we're a pretty big uh, presence to the public in terms of government. Oh, another question I was going to ask. I don't know if, if you could answer this or not, but if because um, you were the rules person before, the jury nullification is that something that's not? I've heard different things about that. Can you say to the jury, just no matter what, you can you can exonerate me, or is, well, that, is that not allowed to be? Uh, not really. <laughs> that uh, there is um, every once in a while a bill to to permit jury nullification, let the jury just do what they want. And it's always unusual to me because, um, I, I mean, what that would be is is the legislature deciding just not to, that people cannot follow the laws that they pass. And it seems yeah. interesting because they pass laws because they want the laws. And then there's also a bill saying, well, you don't have to listen to the laws. You can do exactly what you want. So it's never gained a lot of traction. Um, but I suppose, you know, there could be a bill for it any time. I don't, I, I don't, I, there isn't one right now. And so I, if a jury goes like too far, does something, I mean, the judge can, in extenuating circumstances, can they, what's it called, vacate, they can change the verdict or is that pretty rare? It's extremely rare, but they can. I think it's called a judgment notwithstanding the verdict. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> good, good, good. I, I'm going back to law school thinking with that one because I really can't, um, I mean, I don't follow all the criminal cases, of course, or even civil cases, but I, I it, it really is quite rare for the, you to go th- through an entire jury trial and then the judge to say, well, no, you guys came to the wrong conclusion. That would be, um, I mean, it's not unheard of, but it's pretty darn unusual. So whenever legislators have questions about the court system, I, th- I feel like you're the point person for that. I see you in there all the time testifying and stuff. So, Well, I try to uh, I try to answer questions about how things work. And as I say, I have an interest in, in having them know the facts before they make their decisions. So I always say, ask me anything. I'll, I'll try. And, and we do try to have one unified voice. You know, sometimes they say, what's the court system's position? And not only is there separation of powers issues and things, but, you know, we have 65 different judges at the lower level and then all the appellate judges. So lots of times... There isn't just one court position on a bill. If a bill is um, controversial or really would impact the administration of justice, I should say, I can sometimes get guidance from the Supreme Court on it. But um, generally, we try to funnel everything through one voice so that we we have one message. Yeah, it's interesting because the judges pretty much can't go can't go away unless they get re- re- not retained, right? So they're kind of yeah, well, like, like legislators. I mean, they're kind of there for their term. They are there, and um, they have tremendous ethical constraints about what they can talk about. I mean, in their personal life, uh, they can they, they can't talk about anything that would let so- somebody, even at a dinner party, um, conclude that they were, my, you know, what their personal my, thinking is. My so. good lawyer buddy, I asked him one time uh, if he was ever going to be a judge, and he said, "No way," right, immediately. And I said, "Why not? That's like the prestigious, that's the best job." And he goes. He goes. Uh, a judge is the loneliest job in, in in the state because you 
you can't really go out. I mean, you have to watch your friends. You have to watch what you say. I mean, he said normally judges just kind of hang out with each other. <laughs> Actually, there's a good bit of truth to that. I would say that is true. I mean, if there's a a topic at a at a dinner event about a controversial social issue or something, that judge can't weigh in. You yeah. know, so they have to get up and do the dishes or something. <laughs> I, I saw a pretty prominent judge one time at a restaurant in Anchorage, and I was at high, and there was a big case going on at the time, and I said something. He said, yeah, please don't. Yeah. Don't ask me about that. And I, I said, know. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're muzzled in some way. But it, it makes sense because then people will really feel like they're getting a fair shot in court. And that is um, in Alaska, we really are, you know, really dedicated to the fact that when people come in those doors, we want them to have procedural fairness and not feel like, oh, this judge, you know, is already against me. So that's why you shouldn't know what any personal views are and they can't let those enter into their decision making. Speaking of those doors, when that earthquake happened, there was a famous uh, video of the Anchorage courthouse that went, I mean, I think it had like millions of views on Twitter. The uh, KTVA person had the camera going. Right. Did you guys, was that like a thing in the court system? Did you guys all watch that? Or? Well, I watched it for sure because, it, I mean, I'm very familiar with where that court is. It was the sixth floor, top floor of the Nesbitt building right on 4th Avenue. And uh, I guess in that earthquake, the higher up you were, the more you felt it. Oh, yeah. It looked, I can imagine uh, BP or one of the really tall buildings. But, yeah, you saw things fall off the wall. And, um, yeah. yeah it, was was, pretty ter- it was pretty terrific. Right. Horrific, yeah. I was yeah. like, you're watching it. You're thinking, because I was in my house when it happened, and it was pretty scary. But being up higher would have been even, like you said. Yeah, and we our, our buildings did okay generally. I mean, we're not like the school district having to close down facilities, fortunately. But boy, were there books all over the place. And um, was there anybody in court session when? Oh yes. So what happened? They just stopped it. I'm well. Or? Yes, <laughs> they stopped. Gav- gavel, gavel out. I don't. I don't even know if they bothered to do that, but it was obviously a sudden thing where everybody got under the table or got in doorways or whatever they felt they needed to do. What else was like? This is already at 33 minutes. This is. A, I told you this. These go fast. Uh, I wanted to ask you about two more things. One is um, public uh, defenders and how that works. So that that basically is it. If you can't afford a lawyer, and is it based on your income and, and how many? Uh, there's two different kinds of, there's like, what is it, Office of Public Advocacy? That's a different... Yeah, so if you're you're gearing this towards criminal cases, I assume, yeah, criminal, because right. they do some other things in child in need of aid and whatnot. But yes, the public defenders, which is in the Department of Administration in the executive branch, is, a, is an office with a head, and I don't know if they have 100 attorneys around the state. I, I'm not sure of their number. But yes, it, since you're entitled to an uh, effective criminal defense when you're accused of a crime, if you can't afford one under the U.S. and every constitution, you're entitled to court-appointed counsel. And so we have a rule about what makes you entitled and what the kind of line is. Lots of them are not close calls. Um, you are presumptively given a public defender if you're on public assistance or um, uh, if you have no income whatsoever. And unfortunately, many of the criminal defendants are in that category. And then there's also can be a comparison done where the defendant has to provide a financial statement with all sorts of things about their income and expenses. And then it's compared to maybe the, the cost of well, it's sort of a proxy for the cost of hiring a private attorney, which, if you can imagine, for a felony might be incredibly wow, expensive. Yeah, expensive. So a good number, I mean, the, the majority of the criminal cases do end up having a public defender. So the court just appoints the public defender. Now, if the public defender's office has a conflict of interest, for example, they um, 
are defending co-defendants in the case, or they defended this this person before, this person is a victim in another case that they're involved in, or something like that. They have their own rules for when there's a conflict. They can outsource it to the Office of Public Advocacy. So I think they're considered conflict counsel. I've heard that term. Yeah, I've heard that. And then they handle so, uh, those cases. Office of Public Advocacy is Department of Administration, but are the other defenders part of the court system? Or no. are, they, are they all part of administration? They're all part of the Department of Administration. Yeah, we don't we don't want to be aligned with one of the parties in the case, for example. So they are all in the executive so the, branch. Are the, are the prosecutors part of the court system or are they part nope. of? Nope. They are in the Department of Law under um, oh, okay. the executive branch Oh, yeah, branch that's right. Okay. So all we have in the court system is um, the judges and then, you know, the judges, employees in their chambers or whatever. And then an administrative office, which does, you know, just the courts, human resources and IT um, needs and and fiscal issues and things like that. So what was I going oh, to ask you about the Supreme Court. So those are how many how many years is the term? Uh, they serve um, until they turn 70 unless they oh, so, are non-retained. OK, but they still they still have the that's right. They still have the retention. Yes. Um, but it's a li- it's a more or less lifetime, I guess, until they're 70. Is that kind of how it Well, works? unless they get non-retained. But yes, they can, I mean, they can retire when they want. Um, but they uh, there's mandatory uh, retirement under the Constitution at age 70. And the Supreme Court. Not like the f- federal Supreme no. Court where it's like, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg's like 80. Right. She's awesome. She's still going. <laughs> we don't have anybody that old. <laughs> so at 70 is a, in Alaska, that's. Yeah, that's under the Constitution. Yes. So, um, and some people are not, not ready to retire at 70, but nonetheless, that's what, um, that's what the constitution has. I think it probably 70 was a different way, uh, back in 1959 when they drafted it and some 70 year olds clearly could continue and are perfectly fine, but that's the way it is. Well, I really want to thank you for, we're getting, we're getting here, uh, already at 37 minutes. So. I told you these go, that go is quick. I was going to ask you about the SB 91. You probably know a lot about that, don't you? You I, probably know I more do. about that than anybody else in the in judo, maybe. After each session, I have to go back and tell the judges about the new laws. So I have to make sure I know them pretty well. So, yes, I do know maybe about that's that a, Maybe that's a separate, a separate podcast. So. <laughs> okay. Well, I want to thank you for doing this, especially in this courtroom. I, I sure. got the seal here and all these nice chairs. And I hope I never have to sit here not doing a podcast. I hope uh, you're right. So we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll see you again in the Capitol. You're, you're always over there. So appreciate you doing this. And Thank you, Jeff. Had a good time. Me too. Okay, thanks. Landline.